Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, now a bi-weekly podcast. A brand new episode comes your way November 24th. It's another Alliance bi-weekly podcast you'll be hearing today, Theology on the Go, with Jonathan Master and James Dolzell. Check it out at theologyonthego.org and subscribe at places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular hosting sites. Enjoy this encore episode of Theology on the Go, sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Whether you have a nasty text, you might say, or a clean text, you've got a revelation of God. And if you don't see what that revelation is in the nasty text, then you're, you're impoverishing God's people. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal, my friend. And also we have on the line today uh, the privilege of speaking with someone whose books have had a significant influence on both of us, uh, Professor Dr. Dale Ralph Davis. He has been a minister at a number of churches, First Press, Columbia, Woodland Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, and was a longtime professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. So, Dr. Davis, thanks for joining us today. Surely. Now, were you a professor or a pastor longer? Uh, I, I wasn't sure what the proportions were. Uh, I I think it was about even, Stephen, probably, maybe a little bit more in the pastorate, but every once in a while when it got too hot uh, in the pastorate, I would go back to the seminary and uh, get a little breather. So it it worked out about the same, yeah. I know. Some of us have cushy seminary positions, and the pastors are definitely on the front lines. And and actually, the, the book we wanted to talk about is your book, The Word Became Fresh, which is about preaching Old Testament narrative. And I wanted to begin by asking you a question. In your, in your experience teaching seminarians and also in your preaching, why is it, do you think, that so many preachers are intimidated at the prospect of preaching through Old Testament narratives? I'm not sure. I think possibly part of it is because it's just not as familiar as, as uh, New Testament in general. And um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they wonder sometimes about whether they're correctly interpreting it or not. And then, of course, some, some of the narratives, some of them aren't what we would call clean. Uh, that, what I mean by that is uh, you get into Old Testament narrative and you may go along okay for a while, but uh, then you, you uh, not only hit conundrums in what do you make of this, but you also hit what uh, I call nasty narratives. And uh, you've got a, an Uzzah writhing uh, on the ground uh, by the ark in Second Samuel 6, or you have Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. No matter where you go, uh, eventually you, you run into some rough stuff, and I, uh, that, that may uh, sometimes intimidate. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I could go off of that. I had the, you have a chapter on the nasties uh, in your book, those difficult texts. And you make a statement early on in the chapter um, that avoiding the nasty text gets us nowhere and impoverishes the church. 
Um, and I think you, uh, you made a reference to a commentary that advised that there would, on Genesis 38, there was no homiletical value. This can't be preached. Um, why would it impoverish the church? Shouldn't we, um, shouldn't we be the gatekeepers making sure that the sanitary parts are presented and the unseemly parts uh, kept in the dark? How does it impoverish the church to sort of move around these difficult sections instead of right through them? Well, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's, the, it's the same thing. And in, in whether you have a, a, a nasty text, you might say, or a clean text, you, you've got a revelation of God. And, and if you don't see what that revelation is in the nasty text, then you're, you're impoverishing God's people. And, and, and not only that, but I think uh, also you're, you're uh, keeping them from seeing what could we say? Maybe a, a sample of uh, John 1, 5, you know, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is never snuffed it out, never overcome it. And, and it's even in the, even in the heart and, and um, what we might call a nasty narratives, there, there's always an overcoming providence of God, it seems. I mean, you only have to see that in, in the ancestor record of Matthew 1, uh, where, you, where you have Tamar appearing. And uh, granted, it was uh, bad stuff there, but still it was part of the history and part of the part of the nuts and bolts through which God brought his kingdom and his Messiah. I, I think I think people miss that if if uh, it's not preached. I think sometimes if we leave those out, we give them an impression that things are pretty neat for the God of the Bible. Uh, whereas, as a matter of fact, the scheme of redemption is pretty messy stuff. Uh, whether it's whether it's Genesis 38 or whether it's Ehud in uh, Judges 3 or or Jail in Judges 4, uh, that's the kind of stuff Yahweh gets his hands dirty in. And there's a strange comfort in that if God's people think about it. <laughs> I sometimes tell my kids, that's the reason the Bible isn't a movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but you're saying we should preach it. <laughs> Yes, I think so. Um, I, I, um, I, I think too. Um, I don't know if it was a Genesis 38. Maybe it was when I was working through the uh, Book of Daniel. I think there was a um, some comment on Daniel chapter 11 with all the uh, historical allusions and so on, and King of South and King of the North, and and uh, how how you just can't preach that and so on. But but uh, I'd already. Uh, I'd already written my sermon on it, so I had to go ahead and do it. Uh, uh, I I think uh, you were committed. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like it's sort of like that New York woman said of of uh, George Whitfield. Uh, Mr. Whitfield was so cheerful, it tempted me to become a Christian. And I, I think that's the way these awful <laughs> narratives are in the Old Testament. You know, you tell us that we shouldn't preach them or we think we can't preach them. It, it just almost is sort of like a red hermeneutical flag to a bull. Uh, it, it just tempts you to do it. So, in, in preaching those texts, it sounds like you also would advocate strongly that pastors should make a regular habit of preaching sequentially through books of the Bible so that you don't miss the texts that might be uncomfortable or might not sit neatly with 
with other things that you uh, that you'd normally talk about. So it, it seems like that's part and parcel with the idea of preaching these texts. Is you you got to be going sequentially through books and understanding the context and the argument as a whole. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, Jonathan, and I think it protects you, too. I'm, I'm sure you would agree with that. I'm, I mean, if you just select a narrative and, and uh, uh, preach from it just on a one-shot deal, and, and you start selecting all these, uh, all these Genesis 38 and, and uh, Judges 3 and 2 Samuel 6, unless you're doing a series on nasty narratives, uh, or, or if you do Judges 19 with the uh, the Levites concubine and and so on. What a what a dreadful passage that is. Hey, hey, people people will think there's something weird about you, you know, or you're some kind of uh, um, uh, twisted personality. But but if you if you're say preaching through the Book of Judges and so on, and you get to chapter 19. Uh, I think it, it, it needs discretion. I, I mean, you, you know, but you don't want to sensationalize just to shock. But but you can say, well, this is hard stuff here. You, you may not like this, uh, but this is the next text in our book. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, it gives you gives you gives you cover. It gives you an out, and you, you can say. It's not my fault. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we have to deal with it uh, unless, unless we're going to be prissy and run away from it, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think your, your point is, is an excellent point. Yeah, I, I remember preaching through Judges, and uh, by the way, I used your commentary extensively when I did, but getting to chapter 19, this was a number of years ago, probably close to 20 years ago, but getting to chapter 19, it was, I mean, it was a tremendously difficult passage to preach. And I know I never would have done it unless it was kind of the next, the next uh, thing up right. that, that we, we needed to do to get to, to study the whole, the whole book. Right. Well, when someone comes to a book, a narrative text in the old Testament or narrative book in the old Testament, and say they want to preach through it sequentially, they're persuaded by that. What are some of the features of narratives that they need to keep in mind and, and be aware of uh, as they, as they come to a text that maybe on first glance doesn't have a really uh, neat uh, application or even a, a particularly consistent and strong example. I mean, what are some of the things you're looking for when you come to narrative texts in the Bible? Ooh, uh, well, I, I got the things come up there, and I don't know if I can just pull them up sitting on my backside here. But um, one of them, one of them, always occurs to me is uh, be be ready to be surprised. Um, I I think um, that's one of the the things that uh, delights me about uh, preaching narrative and so on is that uh, I so often find what's so surprising and what I wouldn't necessarily uh, think was going to occur. You know, you think about uh, Jonah chapter one, for example, and, and, and uh, uh, Jonah uh, being the, the kind of prophet that doesn't say, oh, I can't do that. Uh, I'm like Jeremiah. I'm too young. He just says, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't care about project. You know, uh, and, and it says Yahweh hurled a, a great storm on the, on the windstorm on the sea and so on. Well, you know, Jonah rebels and God starts throwing things and, and it's very shocking. <laughs> um, 
here's here he has a recalcitrant servant, and uh, what, what's Yahweh doing? Well, that's not the God we we're told we have. I mean, some people will say, you know, God. God doesn't force you to do anything. He won't violate uh, whatever your druthers are. If you don't want to cooperate with them, why, of course, you know, that's a boundary he won't cross with you. And, and, and I think Joan would say, yeah, that'd be nice if it were only true, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, but, but those kind of surprises, that's one thing. I, I, I think looking for structural clues is a how the narrative is put together. Well, I think another thing is to keep an eye on any overt theological statements in the narrative, uh, like Second Samuel 17, for example, you know, talks about uh, Absalom getting advice from Ahithophel and Hushai and so on. And then about verse 14, I think, or so, it says, you know, but Yahweh had decreed to defeat the council of Ahithophel uh, because he was, was determined to put Absalom or whatever to, to death. And so on. I mean, you know, take them out. Well, well, that that gives you the clue. I mean, the whole narrative is kind of descriptive of how things are going in the Council of War and and uh, Absalom's uh, entourage and so on. But right there in the middle, you've got this theological statement that tells you what's really going on. So I think those uh, direct theological statements and so on in the text need to be really captured and held on to. Just like in, for instance, Genesis 39 as well, you know, you have about uh, three state, three or four statements in Genesis 39 uh, when Joseph is in Egypt and you know, the whole Potiphar's wife thing and so on, but Yahweh was with Joseph. Well, that's at the beginning of the, of the narrative. It's at the end, and I think it wraps the whole thing up, and so you look at it in that light, not just here are principles as to how to deal with temptation, but but rather look at it primarily as here is Yahweh with his servant under duress, and and this is how it looks. Um, quite a contrast. I'm just this kind of a stream of consciousness here, uh, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> quite a no. This is this is great. Quite, quite a contrast to say Genesis 37 when Joseph has a. Uh, maybe a little bit of a snotty teenager, but certainly the object of the hatred and and disdain of his brothers and the favoritism of his father and all that stuff going on in Genesis 37. And the interesting thing is there's no theological statement there that says how Yahweh regards it. There's certainly no Yahweh was with Joseph, and there's certainly no indication that God's not mentioned in Genesis 37. Well, it seems to me that's an important point uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to notice, and and maybe in preaching Genesis 37, that's going to be harder than preaching Genesis 39, but maybe there's also a helpful application there for some of the Lord's people. Sometimes, sometimes in your believing experience and so on, you may be going through something that looks more like Genesis 37, where God doesn't seem to be there, rather than Genesis 39, where his presence seems to be warm. So, but those are, now there may be two or three items there of the kind of thing I would like to look for in there that kind of give you a jump on on uh, getting a hold of how to regard a, a particular text.
I wondered if we could keep on that theme for a moment. Near the end of the book, you you advocate a theocentric approach. Uh, you've just articulated that, and you you suggest that a theocentric ap- approach will slough off scads of unnecessary distractions. Maybe you could comment on how a theocentric approach av- avoids getting caught in a morass of of weeds and technicalities that will really sap the sermon of power or clarity. Oh, well, um, well, I don't know. This just uh, pops into my mind. That, that last uh, allusion to Genesis 39, I think, uh, might help if, you know, some people, I think, would, uh, some guys might look at that. Well, there's Joseph, there's, there's Potiphar's wife, and who knows if she's a real doll or if she's an old egg. It doesn't say. But it's very tempting, and I, I can work it out. Um, there are principles, you could say, for dealing with temptation that you can derive from that text in Genesis 39, about 7 to 12, and, and it seems very relevant. But but it seems, uh, and I'm not saying that that shouldn't come into a sermon, perhaps, but that's not really getting at the testimony of Genesis 39. The testimony of Genesis 39 at the beginning and the end is the emphatic point that Yahweh was with Joseph. So uh, how how do we know the presence of, of God? Well, I, I don't need to get all caught up in all the stuff with Potiphar's wife necessarily, except to say maybe that was one way in which Yahweh showed he was with Joseph in that he escaped those clutches and so on. But I think I think if you if you keep your eye on what God is and what God is doing, uh, then it saves you from moralizing the text. And and um, I'm not saying that the text doesn't have lessons for us and that sort of thing. I'm not opposed to that, but I think sometimes we can we can look too much for moral examples, and then then we're not really seeing how God is operating in in a particular text. Dr. Davis, unfortunately, we are out of time. I wish we could keep talking because I have other <laughs> questions and certainly I want to commend this book to our our uh, listeners. As I would commend all of your books, I, I, I have found them incredibly useful in my own sermon preparation. And this is a this is a good introduction that, that it kind of sweeps away a lot of the the complications uh, of uh, preaching Old Testament narrative. So thank you for your work and thanks for your time today. Oh, sure. Thank you, Jonathan. James, I I could barely conceal my uh, admiration for Ralph Davis. He, uh, I really do pick up his commentaries uh, whenever I'm preaching through an Old Testament narrative book. He's written commentaries on many, many of the Old Testament narrative texts, and they're I always find them helpful. I always find them down to earth, and they they do what we heard him do in our time together, which was kind of cut through some things we can get tangled up in. Yeah. You and I have both said this about his books and even this book in particular, um, that it's just shot through with common sense. It's not a boutique or exotic, almost Gnostic approach to the scriptures where you were only the initiated with a secret set of highly sophisticated instruments could possibly ever crack the code. He really, he kind of rubbishes that and and brushes it aside. um, I think justifiably but with, but but he puts something in its place, which is a great set of questions 
and things to be conscious of as you come to the text. And he also, I don't know, we've probably both had seminary professors to say, as they do, um, to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, and I think he's really a good guide on how to do that uh, for the preacher, particularly in large sections of narrative. And even as he mentioned, nasty or messy narratives, um, I've sometimes called them the, you know, tongue in cheek, the God behaving badly passages that we don't know what to do with. Um, and I kind of like his, his bullishness to just press right through it. Yeah. When he talked about in Jonah, God starts throwing things after <laughs> Jonah disobeys. But, you know, I will say, uh, so, so I agree with all of that. And that's certainly the way his preaching uh, hits you. And, and uh, even if you, you download or listen to some of his sermons, but, but at the same time, I, I think we can run the risk of, of thinking that it's just a superficial reading and it's not, he's, he's doing right. tons of exegetical work in the original languages to get to the heart of what this text means for God's people today. So, which is, which is a, a, a massive undertaking and yet, um, and yet he manages to do that without getting distracted by the many things that can distract us related to critical issues or other things like that. And I think we should keep in mind that this, this book and several of his books are really helps for, for preachers getting to the sermon. Um, but this is not a replacement of doing the serious, heavy exegetical work in preparation. What he's really interested in is how you move from that depth of study to what you're going to say. He even says at one point in this book uh, that there's just so much that we're going to have to leave in our study for the sake of clarity um, and time and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely true. It's the iceberg underneath the ocean that, that is, you know, you can, you can, you can begin to get a feel for that as you, as you hear him. Well, um, Thank you, James. Always good to engage in a conversation. And uh, boy, having Ralph Davis on was, uh, was a delight. I agree. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Theology on the Go. If you'd like a, the, an opportunity to win a copy of the book we were discussing, which is entitled The Word Became Fresh, uh, by Dale Ralph Davis. If you'd like the opportunity to win a copy, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a drop-down menu that um, enables you to enter your information. And if you uh, are able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which does so much good work, but also overseas, of course, this podcast, you can do that at alliancenet.org or at placefortruth.org. There are donate buttons on both of those sites. And then also, if you could tell others about Theology on the Go, we're always pleased to hear from listeners and to hear about new listeners. And so uh, if you can spread the word to anyone you think might be helped, we would appreciate that. And if you can write a review for us, uh, if you're downloading this from Apple um, podcasts, that's always a help as well. So thank you for writing and for listening today to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word, upholding biblical doctrine, sharing the gospel, and equipping Christians with trustworthy Bible teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. 
And it's your generous gifts that enable this good work. As we approach the year's end, we need your help to raise the funds necessary to finish the year strong and reach even more people in the year ahead. So please join us and help underwrite this encouraging Bible teaching ministry. Visit AllianceNet.org slash donate to make a donation online. That's AllianceNet.org slash donate or call 1-800-488-1888.